You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Well, good morning. It's good to be back with you all. Uh, Some of you know that I had been down to California for a couple of weeks. My sister-in-law passed away and she went to be with the Lord. And I had the privilege of being able to share the graveside service as well as the memorial service. While I was down there, I had the opportunity to share the gospel on two occasions, which I was quite excited about. But one of the questions that I was asked while I was there was, how do you know when somebody's a Christian? Well, I tried to be kind of textbook, I guess, in my response. I told them, first of all, they have to understand the aspect of sin before they can become a Christian. Then they have to understand who Christ was and what he has done on our behalf to be saved. So I explained the way of salvation. They said, well, we understand that, but there are people we know that claim to be Christians, and yet their lives don't seem to line up with their Christian profession. So we had some long discussions about that. Well, one of the texts that I used when I was doing the graveside was 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, that Paul gave encouragement to all the saints that had lost loved ones in Christ. And, of course, uh, we know that uh, he gave them the encouragement that we are not to mourn as those without any hope, because our hope is that the dead in Christ will will be raised first when the Lord returns. So that's a magnificent hope. But as I was asked these questions, I pondered, some of the rest of the text in 1 Thessalonians. And I discovered in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, in the summarization of those 10 verses, there's a great deal of theology, but there's also a great evidence of what Christians are and how they should be. Now, we'll look at a little bit of the background. I talked to Jim before I prepared this message to make sure it wouldn't be in conflict because I knew that at some time he had preached 1 Thessalonians. Well, he said, uh, don't worry about that. He said, most people can't remember my messages two weeks ago. And I said, well, how long ago was it? And he said, well, it was over 10 years at least. So I feel confident that uh, even if this is a remuneration or a reiteration of some of the truths that were proclaimed, it'll be good for all our edification. So I want to give a little bit of background of the history and occasion of this epistle before I begin the epistle. Thessalonica, uh, the modern name for that city is Thessaloniki, which was formerly Thessalonica. And it's one of the largest and most important cities in the Roman province of Macedonia, which is the part of the modern Greece, 
Now, this is one of the few cities that exists today that Paul actually went to and preached and proclaimed the gospel. It was uh, approximately a populace of 250,000 at the time when Paul was there, including Greeks, Romans, uh, some sailor, tradesmen, businessmen. And the Jewish population was actually large enough to support a synagogue. So they had a synagogue there in Thessalonica. Now, that was contrary to where Paul had come from in Philippi. That wasn't a large enough support of Jews there to support a synagogue. Now, there's a a road that goes east and west on the highway of the Roman Empire. It's, It's called the Ignatian Way. And it's actually a major road that goes through Macedonia and it connects to the highway of the Roman Empire. So Macedonia became a province in 148 BC. And Thessalonica was actually made a capital city. Now because the uh, town and people of Thessalonica at that time had backed Antony and Octavian in their campaign against Brutus and Cassius, they were rewarded by the Roman emperor. And they were made what's known as a free city. That is, they weren't going to have Roman soldiers in and throughout the city to govern the city. They actually had the freedom to have their own measure of... what they called polytarchs. That was the people that were chosen to be magistrates. So they had the freedom to choose their own magistrates to run the city and govern the city. Now, Thessalonica was actually one of the most important cities in the area besides Byzantine Empire, after which placed after Constantinople. Paul first visited Thessalonica, Thessalonica excuse me, <clears throat> on his second missionary journey. Now, I'd like you to look at your maps, if you would. Uh, we have a map on the <clears throat> back of your bulletin. I'm going to try to outline Paul's journey there. Jim gave us an excellent uh, background on this when he went through the book of Acts, but this will be a way of a refresher. <clears throat> After traveling... Uh, across Asia Minor to the region of Messiah. You'll look on the right side of your map and you'll see the arrow coming up and it goes toward the coast of the Aegean Sea and you'll see Messiah. The apostle had reached an impasse. They had been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to preach in the province of Asia, that is, to the south of Messiah. And their attempt to travel north was also blocked. With no more <clears throat> another way to travel, they proceeded and they went to Troas, the city which is on the Aegean Sea. Now you can't read it very well, but there, Troas is there next to that little dot where the arrow comes from Messiah. At that point, Paul had a vision. His vision was of a Macedonian imploring him to come to the province and preach the gospel. 
<clears throat> that was given to us in Acts 16. So they crossed the Aegean Sea and they came to Philippi, where Paul's fearless preaching got him in trouble. After he preached there and proclaimed the gospel, they were angered by the converts that they saw, so they locked him up. Paul and Silas both were locked up in the Philippian jail. As a result, the Lord miraculously caused an earthquake and released Paul miraculously. During the process, the Philippian jailer became a believer. So they had beaten Paul and Silas, but the uh, leaders of Philippi were quite fearful because they had not given Paul, the apostle, a proper trial, and they had beaten him even though he was a Roman citizen. When they found that out, they were fearful. So they went to Paul and Silas, and they begged them to please leave. So they left. But they had a journey from Philippi to Thessalonica. Now on the map, it doesn't show the scale. Oh, it does below. It's almost a, it's about a 100-mile journey. And you could imagine they had just been beaten uh, as they were imprisoned. And then they had to make this journey by foot to travel from there all the way over to Thessalonica. So they made this journey. And as they watched, they uh, went to the synagogues. Now, in Acts, Luke is very careful to say that they went three Sabbaths to the synagogues. Now, that isn't an indication of actually how long Paul was there. Because if you remember, Paul received two gifts at two different times from the Philippians to sustain him. Also, because Paul did not want to be troublesome or burdensome to the people at Thessalonica, he took up his trade. So he had to have been there substantially longer than just three Sabbaths. But he could have ministered for three Sabbaths in the synagogue, and as they rejected the gospel, some of them, then he went elsewhere within Thessalonica to proclaim the gospel because many were saved. As they watched Paul winning the Gentiles to faith, some of the Jews resented Paul's ministry there. So they attempted to find Paul and Silas and Timothy to seize them. When they couldn't find them, they went to uh, the house of Jason and they brought him in for questioning. They wanted to find out where Paul and Silas and Timothy were so they could imprison them. He didn't give them the information, so what they did, they didn't want a scene there because, now you have to remember, this was a free city. If they were to show any signs of disruption, then Rome gets involved, and then they would send Roman soldiers there. So they didn't want things to go in a way where it would get back to the Roman Empire or Roman Emperor and all of a sudden they find that they need to have some order brought to uh, this town of Thessalonica. So they just asked for a bond from Jason. And they said if Paul and Silas remain here, 
were going to keep that bond. So Paul and Silas left, and they went on and traveled to Berea. So that was the account of how Paul came to Thessalonica. Now, when Paul was forced to leave there, he had a great concern. He had a great love for the Thessalonians, the, those that believed. And he prayed for them, and then later on when he was in Corinth is when he penned this letter. This letter shows a great affection for the saints at Thessalonica. So here, as Paul opens this book, we're going to take a, just a brief look at what Paul had to say. Now, there's a great deal of theology here. Some of the uh, theologians and commentators call these two epistles, the first and second Thessalonians, they call them the uh, estacological letters. In other words, because Paul was talking about the end times in both first Thessalonians and second Thessalonians, they considered those books primarily to be eschatology. Well, uh, I don't necessarily think that is so because even though it contains that, and there's some very important eschatological truths that are brought forth by Paul, these letters are showing us an exemplary group of believers. The church of Thessalonica was exemplary. And we're going to see how that is lived out in the lives of these new believers. In the first and only ten verses in this first chapter, we're going to see several things. So let's, let's begin to look at it. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. Now Silvanus uh, was Silas. To the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, first of all, Paul addresses these Thessalonians and he gives glory to God the Father and to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, as we look at this, not only do we see the way of salvation, but we're going to see the entire triune Godhead involved in the whole process of salvation. It isn't just the Lord Jesus Christ giving his life on a cross and paying the ransom for sin, and it isn't just God the Father who elects but it is also brought to them in the power of the Holy Spirit. So let's see what Paul says here. First of all, we begin with salvation is and begins with God. We give thanks to God always for you, always making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith, labor of love, and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, when Paul starts out in verse 1, he uses a word for church. And in the original language, that word is ecclesia, which is related to another phrase which is used down in verse 4 of ekkaleo, which means to call out. And it means also the called ones or the elect ones. Now, in uh, verse 4, it refers to the beloved brother and your election by God. Um, Paul here gives us a, a 
doctrinal truth. Um, let me say this, and I say it unequivocally, but the doctrine of election does confuse a lot of people. Not only confuses a lot of people, but it frightens some people. Not only that, some are actually angered by anyone who would attempt to teach this doctrine. Now, I'm not going to go into any depth about this, but I'm not going to skip over it. But Paul is very clear to these new believers that the whole process of their salvation is a work of God, start to finish. Salvation begins with God. In 2 Thessalonians, Paul says this, God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation. That's 2 Thessalonians 2.13. In the Gospel of John, the Lord Jesus says this, You have not chosen me, but I have chosen you. John 15.16. He hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world. Paul tells the Ephesians in Ephesians 1.4. Now, the entire plan of salvation begins with God, and it's carried out by God. The plan was initiated before the world was created. Salvation involves the love of God. God demonstrates his own love toward us, that while we are yet sinners, Christ died for us. Paul told the church at Rome that in Romans 5.8. But let me ask this. Is it just God's love that saves us? No, it isn't. It's God's grace. God's grace gives us what we do not deserve. God's mercy does not give us what we do deserve. So it is God's love combined with his grace and mercy. All those are part of God's attributes bring us to salvation. Now, salvation involves faith. For by grace you were saved through faith. Ephesians 2.8. Paul and Silas and Timothy brought the gospel to Thessalonica, and they preached it in the power of God. Now, verse 5, we're going to cover in a bit. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but in also in power. If we were to proclaim the gospel apart from the empowering of the Holy Spirit, it would fall on deaf ears. It is the power of the Holy Spirit that brings forth and gives life to the hearers of the gospel. But we also have to remember that faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word. So now let's Let's try to answer a few questions. How is it that Paul knew that these were truly believers? What is it in their lives that evidenced this change in their lives? Salvation has to change our life. When I was having this conversation with somebody when I was down there in California, they said, well, when you say that they're changed, what do you mean? And I said, well... It doesn't mean that we're flawless. It doesn't mean that we're perfect. But it does mean that we are changed individuals. In other words, we no longer want to do the things that we did prior to our salvation. We no longer want to remain in that sin. Salvation is a place where we turn 
from our sin and we turn to God. So I tried to explain some of the fruit of that. Paul gives us a better understanding here. In 1 Thessalonians uh, 1.3, there are a few things that he says. Now, some of the cardinal virtues of a Christian are these three virtues. Faith, hope, and love. Now, there's a little bit of a reverse order here, but Paul gives us this in verse 3. Let's look at it. Remembering without ceasing your work of faith, labor of love, and patience and hope of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if we combine this, look at verse 3, and then if your Bible doesn't change the page, look over at verse 9. Verse 3, your work of faith. What was that? Verse 9. You turned from idols. Your labor of love. To what? Verse 9. To serve the living God. And patience of hope. Verse 3. Verse 10. To wait for His Son. Isn't that a great example of the changed life that these had? If one claims to be a child of God or God's elect, but their life isn't changed, they're only trying to fool themselves. There must be a changed life. Those whom God chooses, He changes. does not mean that we're made perfect, but they are possessors of a new life. And that cannot be hidden. Faith, hope, and love, these are cardinal virtues of a Christian. Faith always leads to works. We did a few, a couple of years ago, a study through the book of James in Sunday school. And one of the cardinal truths that James brought forth was that faith without works is dead. He wasn't saying that our works accomplish anything for salvation. He said that our works is a result of our salvation. Love. Love is an evidence of salvation. The love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given to us. Paul claims that in Romans 5. We are taught by God to love one another. 1 Thessalonians 4.9 Hope is another evidence of salvation. Waiting for Jesus' return. That's in verse 10 of this first chapter. The return of Jesus is dominant, is a dominant theme in both these letters. Unsaved people are really not eagerly awaiting God's return. In fact, I would dare say, when the rapture of the church occurs, there's going to be great chaos and confusion about what just happened. That's going to be a great time. These people were exemplary. What do we mean by that? Well, from the very first of their Christian experience, this church became a model for all the churches around. As we look at the map here, they were a model to all the churches in Macedonia. But Paul says later, not only that, but in all places. And we're going to look at how that occurred 
in a little bit. Verse 5. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power in the Holy Spirit, and in much assurance, as you know, what kind of men we were among you for your sake. During that time, many of the preachers of that day were false teachers, and there were many philosophers of that day, and they were nothing but charlatans. They went around and spoke, but they did so for a living. They went around and tried to uh, dupe some of the people into thinking what they were proclaiming was something worthy of giving them some kind of a donation. But when Paul and Silas and Timothy brought the gospel to Thessalonica, it came with power. And not only that, they not only received the word, but they received the messengers of the word. Did you notice that Paul and Silas and Timothy, they did not do anything to burden these young believers. They were there for a short period of time, but Paul took up his tent-making trade. Why? It wasn't because he wasn't worthy of being... Uh, remunerated for his work in the gospel. That wasn't it. But he sensed at that time it was necessary for him not to be a burden to these Thessalonians. So he did receive gifts from Philippi on two accounts. And then he also worked in his trade. So in spite of the persecution in Philippi that he received and the beatings and the imprisonment, they still came here and proclaimed the word Boldly, without fear. Could you imagine? Just got out of jail. We're beaten. We're tired, probably in much pain. Came here to proclaim to the Thessalonians the gospel. No fear, complete boldness. I must uh, agree when I or acknowledge when I was down in uh, California when I did the message there at the local fellowship where my sister-in-law used to fellowship. I was nervous. Uh, I always get nervous when I teach or attempt to preach. But when I gave the message there, I was excited. I used the text in Romans chapter 8 about the assurance of the believer. And I was excited because I knew what the Word of God could do, not because of anything I could say or do, but I knew what power there was in God's Word. And I knew what it could do with the enlightenment and the power of the Holy Spirit. So I was excited. Now, I don't know what fruit would be born there, but some of us plant, some of us water, but it's God that gives the increase. Here, Paul and Silas and Timothy went forth without any fear at all. Verse 6 And you became followers of us and of the Lord. They followed their spiritual leaders. That word follow there, it actually means imitators. These new believers not only believed the message, but they believed in the messengers. They had such a good testimony and they had lived such a life that these new believers could see Paul, Silas, and Timothy as ones that were living for Christ, even prepared to die for Christ, and giving their lives for the sake of the gospel. This led to severe persecution. 
It's not enough for us just to share the gospel, but it's equally important for us to follow up with teaching and discipleship and guidance. When Paul and Silas left, they had to go away because of the fear of what they would do to the believers. Paul sent Timothy back. And when Timothy reported back to Paul in Corinth, he was elated. He saw what God was doing in those young believers, so much so that he said their word was going everywhere. The word was going everywhere. Verse 6, the second half, says this, Having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit, not only did they receive the word and carry on to proclaim the word, but in turning from idols, they suffered persecution. What do you mean by that? Well, what was going on is some of the family members had even rejected those who believed. Some of the Christians there were being rejected by their family, their friends, and some of them were being fired from their jobs. Why? Because they had turned to Christ. They were living a transformed life. They were no longer turning to idols. In fact, they rejected the idols. And they received the word of God. This is the kind of transformation that took place in these Thessalonians. Verse 7, they encouraged one another. Now, Christians are able to encourage one another. And that's what we should be doing. We should be encouraging one another to love and good deeds. There should never be competition between Christians. We should come together in love and encourage one another, encourage the faint-hearted. These were encouraging one another. Verse 7, so that you became examples in all Macedonia and Achaia who believe. Can you imagine that? Look at the map. All of Macedonia, this little town, of Thessalonica and the small group of believers were having such an impact that they in fact almost infected the whole area with that enthusiasm. Think of it. Wow. What a report for a church. What an exemplary church. Verse 8. They sounded forth the gospel. Listen to this. Paul goes on to say, For from you the word of the Lord has sounded forth, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. Well, how did this happen? Well, as we spoke of when I introduced this uh, book or this epistle, we talked about the strategic location of Macedonia. Look at where Thessalonica is. It's right on the coast. So not only did they, in fact, uh, proclaim the gospel locally, but this was the main road, remember, uh, that came through to Rome. So all the travelers going through Macedonia, they had the witness of the gospel by these believing Thessalonians. Not only that, but ships came in. Sailors came into town. They were able to hear the gospel. Not only that, but when the Merchants that were saved that lived in Macedonia went out. They proclaimed the gospel. So it went out everywhere. Now, the word uh, Paul uses here is they 
sounded forth the gospel. Uh, to sound forth uh, means to blast forth in the original language, to sound forth intensely. The perfect tense <coughs> form indicates that the churches were bold and they continually trumpeted forth the gospel. Can you imagine how? They were so exuberant that they couldn't stop. They couldn't hold it inside. Think of it. That's the kind of zeal that they had. <clears throat> Since it was a hub of travel there, they had a tremendous influence. So much so that Paul ended up in that verse saying he had no need to say anything. He didn't have to tell people what was going on in Thessalonica. People were coming to Paul in Corinth telling them what was going on in Thessalonica. That's tremendous. <clears throat> now, one of the evidence here of their salvation was this. They turned to God from idols. Now, here's the rub. Uh, some would say, you know, if if you really believe that the Bible teaches election, why should we evangelize? Well, either you don't understand evangelism or you don't understand election. Because the fact is, the elect do not have any excuse from shunning from the gospel. They should never shun away from evangelizing the gospel. Because... God uses his word and he proclaims his word and it's the Holy Spirit that quickens his word to bring about salvation. So as these people received the gospel, they were turning from their idols. Think about that. They were living in complete idolatry. Not much different than we do here in the United States. They not only turned from their idols, but they turned to God. It was a complete, utter faith in God, even when they were suffering persecution. Now, we have many believers that are serving in various parts of the world that are suffering greatly, some even to death. Persecution for the sake of the gospel. We here see these were prepared to do so. They didn't pull back anything from sharing the gospel. The <clears throat> New Testament indicates that sinners, when they're converted, there's an absolute turning in direction. Turning from sin and to God. That's an absolute change in their life. <clears throat> Such turning is more than just changing your belief about who Christ is. It's not just that. It's, it's not a... Uh, cognitive thought about, well, now I think I know who Jesus Christ is. It's a whole attitude of change. Turning from the life of sin, turning to Christ, doesn't mean that we don't fail. But it means that our life is changed completely, forever. <clears throat> Paul knew that those who had believed had turned from their devotion to idols to serve the living God. One of the evidences of that was they were an expectant people. Look at verse 10. And they turned to the living and true God 
and to wait for his son from heaven, who raised him from the dead, even Jesus Christ, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Now, their waiting was another example of their understanding of who Christ was and what he was going to do. Remember, Paul gave them, I don't know how long he was there, but these Thessalonians were greatly enlightened by the truths of God. And in these two epistles, it's just loaded with theology. Not only eschatology, but how to live the Christian life. I mean, it's, it's full of rich truths from, from Paul as he was inspired of God to write to them. Because they had trusted Christ, they looked forward to his return. That expect, expectancy was one of joy and exuberance. Now, they were a little bit confused. Some of them were wondering, and that's why Paul had to give them some correction. Some of them were concerned about those that were in Christ that died, and Paul in chapter 4 illuminates that. Well, those are going to be raised first. And then some of them were wondering about the return and what was going to happen, and Paul gives them further instruction in this epistle as well as the second letter to the Thessalonians. Thessalonians. So when we look at the last part of verse 10, we see Paul mentioning Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Now some believe that the wrath to come refers to the great tribulation, and that's what they were going to be delivered from. But the immediate context is not that. Paul does address this later on in the epistles, but not the immediate context. Here, when he speaks of the wrath to come, he uses this word orgy, which describes God's settled judgment and his settled wrath. It isn't an outbursting of anger and wrath. This is a predetermined, settled wrath. And he's talking about the final judgment, that all believers will be delivered from that final judgment. For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. So as we close here, let's think about this. These are the marks of a Christian, of a genuine follower of Christ. They had love, they had faith, and they had hope. It was evidenced in their lives. It's actually a, a book that we can look at, much like if we study out the book of 1 John, The Fruit of a Christian, or if we study out the book of James, or many other epistles, or even the Gospels, we'll see what the Christian life should manifest. But here, Paul concisely gives that to us in ten verses. These are the marks of the true Christian. Now, from time to time, it's possible for even a true believer to lose touch with these realities and to live in a sinful state, inconsistent with their position in the body of Christ. Peter says this to urge them to come back. Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing of you. <clears throat> it's not that we need to convince God. He already knows who are his own. He already knows who constitutes his elect. But there's nothing more assuring for a professing Christian to live by grace 
each day in obedience to God's word. A church that truly lives in expectation of seeing Christ Jesus at any time is going to be a vibrant church. If we're looking forward to the return of Christ, we're going to have a greater compassion for the lost, a greater desire to evangelize, and also a greater desire to be obedient to what God has called us to. What every church should be is what every Christian should be. Exemplary, enthusiastic, sharing the gospel with others, and expecting the Lord's return. Perhaps this would make a good text for us to make a personal examination. Father, we just give you thanks today for your revealed word. We thank you for the work of your spirit in presenting and proclaiming the gospel. We thank you for the work of your spirit in regeneration. We thank you, Father, for the entire work of the triune Godhead in bringing about salvation for all those that you've called. We ask, Lord, that we would be able to examine ourselves before your word and that you would reveal to us anything that we may need to address before you as we come to you in prayer. We just give you thanks. We pray for our mission team that they would be an example to all of those that they touch in Mexico. Bring them home safely to us. We look forward to the good report that we will hear as you work in and through them. We just pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.